Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Mark Freestone. He's a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University of London, an author and an expert in psychopathology. There's a modern fascination with psychopaths. True crime is the most popular single podcast genre out there, and Netflix documentaries about real-life serial killers capture everyone's attention. But why are we so obsessed with dangerous individuals, and what is it that makes a psychopath who they are? Expect to learn what are the differences between a psychopath and a sociopath, why having psychopaths in society was an advantage for a long time, why there are so few female psychopaths, what happens when a university lecturer discovers his own psychopathy in his 40s, the scariest criminals Mark has ever worked with, and much more. Obviously, there are a lot of episodes on Modern Wisdom about improving your mindset or understanding yourself and the world around you, but I do also enjoy the ones that are just a cool story or just interesting. You don't have the pressure of having to remember it so that you can then wake up and journal it in the morning. It's just something fascinating, right, about some of the most interesting and strange elements of human nature. Today definitely counts as one of those. In other news. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. You are not eating enough fruit and vegetables in your diet, and you know it, and this is going to help. It's the best green strength that I've ever found. I wondered why Rogan and Tim Ferriss and Lex Friedman and Andrew Huberman and David Sinclair were all harping on about it, uh, and it does make sense. It is the most advanced and most comprehensive green strength that I've ever come across, and no matter what you're doing with your diet, it's always difficult to make sure you've got the right micronutrients in there. And by taking Athletic Greens every day, it's just going to ensure that all of your bases are covered. It's a probiotic, a prebiotic, it's a minerals, it's super greens. It's literally everything that you need in one drink. You don't need to take multiple products or potions. And it's been updated 53 times over the last decade. So if you're looking to make a positive change with your diet, this is a great place to start. Also, you can get a 60-day money-back guarantee, which means that you can buy it and try it for 59 days, and if you do not like it, they will give you your money back. Plus, there is a year's free supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs, free pots, shakers, and more if you go to athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom. That's athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom to go and upgrade your nutrition. In other, other news... This episode is brought to you by Let's Get Checked. Most of you know the symptoms of low testosterone, the inability to gain muscle, mood swings, concentration issues, and low sex drive. Maybe you already know your testosterone levels and are actively supplementing to try and bring it up, but there is another hormone called sex hormone binding globulin, which is responsible for carrying your testosterone throughout your bloodstream, and if your SHGB is low, you can have normal testosterone levels and still feel the effects of low testosterone. So if you're feeling symptoms and your testosterone levels are normal, or or you haven't tested them yet, then Let's Get Checked have got a great test that you can do. They're a worldwide leader in at-home testing kits, and their male hormone tests let you easily test your testosterone, SHGB levels, and other important male hormone levels at home. You can order a testing kit that will be delivered to you in a discreet packaging with next-day delivery. Once the sample arrives in the laboratory, confidential results will be available from a secure online account within two to five days, and they are reviewed by a clinician, plus a member of the Let's Get Checked nursing team may call you to review your results as well. They're CLIA approved and CAP accredited, which are the highest ranking levels of lab accreditation. So if you want to test your testosterone levels and your hormone levels without having to leave your house, head to 
trylgc.com slash modern wisdom. That's trylgc.com slash modern wisdom. You can choose US or UK at the top of the page. And then the code modern30 will get you 30% off your testosterone test and your SHGB test. It's less than 50 pounds or 50 bucks, I think, to get this test done. So there, there is no reason not to do it. Trylgc.com slash modern wisdom and modern 30 for 30% off. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by Pure Sport CBD. They are the highest quality CBD company that I've ever found. If you are looking to relax on a nighttime to soothe your mind and relax your body, this is a great place to start. Customers say that Pure Sport's products are helping them with aches and pains throughout the body, anxiety, stress, irritable bowel syndrome, depression, inflammation, nausea, and report increased levels of concentration, improved ability to relax and meditate, but perhaps most importantly, improvements to their sleep quality. Their Unwind Blend is the best pre-bed routine that I've ever found. It's got CBD and chamomile and lavender and vitamin B complex. It's an essential group of all natural vitamins that the body needs every day, which helps to reduce stress and enhance your mood. You'll fall asleep easier on a nighttime, stay asleep throughout the night, and wake up feeling more rested and revitalized in the morning. So if you want to check out their entire range, including their Unwind Blends, plus they've got freeze roll-ons if you've been training in the gym, and pure CBD products as well, head to bit.ly slash cbdwisdom. That's bit.ly slash cbdwisdom. And the code MW20 at checkout will get you 20% off all full-priced items. bit.ly slash cbdwisdom and MW20 for a big fat 20% discount. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mark Freestone. Mark Freestone, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. For those people that are watching on YouTube, you may notice a uh, slight change in my usual recording setup. I'm still here in Guatemala. Uh, It's taken a little bit longer than expected to get my visa back from the U.S. Embassy. So this is the hotel room locale, uh, and I've brought a uh, coconut from downstairs at the breakfast buffet. So all is not completely terrible. Uh, But today, speaking about psychopaths, why is it that you got into working with psychopaths, Mark? I don't know what compels someone to think when they're in their youth that this is the road that they want to travel down. Well, that's a really good question, Chris. I think lots of people do want to be forensic psychologists. I think you know, crime scene and CSI and all that stuff has got the word forensic into people's brains as something glamorous maybe. And there's never a sort of shortage of people with an interest in serial killers, quite a few of whom tend to be psychopaths although by not all means all but I, I didn't I, I kind of didn't really have any of that I just sort of fell into it my my, my job was as a, a sociologist I was a, a sociology PhD student and, and the way that I um, practiced was uh, using a technique called ethnography where you basically put yourself in with a group of people doing something you think is cool and interesting you watch them do it you do a little bit yourself maybe participant observation and then you write about it and my PhD was on anti-globalization protest which is miles away but just as I was finishing the local mental health trust opened a new wing in Rampton Hospital which is 
one of the three maximum security mental hospitals in the UK uh, for people that were called dangerous and severe personality disorders. So that means basically people who are psychopaths or people who have very, very complex and, and, and usually uh, high risk personality disorders such as antisocial or borderline personalities or that means that they're at risk of committing a crime and and the, the opportunity came up to do an ethnography there and i was like yeah that sounds great cool sign me up what's a psychopath and i just sort of <laughs> i just sort of stuck there so i really did honestly fall into it um and i think early on in my career i was a little bit kind of running from pillar to post being manipulated confused and, and not generally getting the whole thing but with time you know it, it sort of comes i guess was there a harsh learning lesson early on in your career? Did you, uh, with wet behind the ears and naive, was there anything that you came up against? Uh, definitely, definitely. I think two two classic ones is, first of all, um, psychopaths are very manipulative. You know, So when you meet a psychopath for a short space of time, you are often experience what we call the glib and superficial charm. So I often say to someone, if you had to have a 10-minute conversation with a psychopath, you probably wouldn't notice anything untoward. You might actually find them quite warm and you know pleasant and certainly charming because that's part of the disorder. I think it comes from the way that psychopaths learn about other people by observing what other people respond well to but without having that sort of sense of wanting to please others but simply aping the behavior that they see around them so uh, when i was working in the prison service there was a very very charming and very very manipulative psychopath and i think i wasn't the only person to be deceived by this man but he was also playing in the guitar club where i i, pl I played the bass guitar myself so i come to the guitar club and provide a bit of bass backing for all the prisoners doing leonard cohen and white stripe songs and uh, we'd meet there and we'd talk about music and things and um i was uh uh sort of i found this guy very intimidating we'll call him paul for the sake of argument it's also his name in my book but he i found him quite intimidating at first but over time we kind of got to know each other and we bonded a little bit over music and he asked me sort of towards the end of my time at the prison uh, whether i bring him in some um sheet music on the internet now you think about something like this and you're like well you know what's the harm right it's a few pages printed off of uh, you know guitar tablature or something what could possibly it's be done with, give someone a, with it yeah give someone a nasty paper cut i mean you, <laughs> it's not worth the, uh, the time you spend in segregation for that i don't think so i thought well let's you know that's fine let's go ahead and do it but of course what manipulation like that doesn't sort of come it doesn't start with somebody asking you to bring in you know half a kilogram of cocaine into the prison right it starts with little things like that so as it turned out i i, I brought the um the sheet music to the prison and left it in my car because i had other things on my mind i think i also had this sort of twinge of conscience at the last minute like maybe this isn't such a good idea and then i had to spend some time away from the prison when i came back it turned out that not, not only had paul been manipulating several other members of staff in many ways but he was actually having a sexual relationship with one of the female officers um and it had all come out and and i think you know that this sort of thing happens from time to time but the problem was that it was quite clear that other officers were aware that this was going on but hadn't said anything and when you have that kind of collusion where everyone's supporting the manipulation to take place it, it really is quite worrying because it means the person at the center the psychopath in this case has fingers in virtually all parts of the organization and everything's very compromised so once you have that happen paul has to be trans had to be transferred out and the, the prison officer lost her job and was quite lucky she wasn't in mental health because otherwise she would have um, uh, been possibly uh, accused and convicted of sexual abuse so that <laughs> That's one oh aspect. Manipulation is constantly, you know, 
right there when he worked with psychopaths. The second thing is that not everybody who's a psychopath is necessarily rock hard, scary and manipulative. Some of them are really, really quite vulnerable. And you, you often find yourself getting into the state of feeling sorry for them or feeling what we call a sort of heart sink where you look, oh, my God, this guy's had such a terrible life. And it's usually with the younger men. I'm a dad now. And I think I may have had a bit of a, a dad like impulse at the time. But, oh, look at this guy. He's had a terrible life. And all his, you know, all his rage is directed inwards. But the thing is that even when people are not outwardly aggressive and difficult like Paul, but maybe like someone like Danny in my book, where he just constantly harming himself and can't really see the good in himself. The problem is that is that can actually be quite bottomless, that lack of self-esteem, that lack of an, an identity. And if you start pouring empathy into it, which I did initially, and a lot of staff, I think, never actually stop. It just keeps being drained from you. You never reach a point where that person has uh, filled up with the empathy and the love that they need because they haven't been able to change the way they think about other people fundamentally. So those two things sort of, you know, riding the line between being <laughs> alert to the fact you're being manipulated, but also trying to give an appropriate amount of empathy and sympathy. That's what makes the job really, 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 really challenging. And I think part of the reason that we were never able to fill all the, the nursing and the, the doctor and the psychology posts that we wanted to, to make the program a success, but there you have it. Mm. Are there different types of psychopaths? I know that in narcissism, you have grandiose narcissists and vulnerable narcissists. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Is, is there any sort of equivalent in psychopathy? I'm very glad you asked me that question, Chris, because this is my this is my current um, thinking about it. Because I think if you if you look at Paul and Danny, so we have somebody who's uh, got a, you know history as a sort of drug enforcer. He killed a man, but he didn't do it directly. He got other people to do it for him, and then denied all plausibly denied that was the all manipulated guy. That's right. Oh yeah. yeah, as is as is his character, evidently. Absolutely. Killed, killed him with and, some guitar sheet music. <laughs> or got someone else to kill him with yeah, guitar sheet. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I don't know. And then you take someone like Danny, who has a much more sort of um, personal crime where he is, uh, he forms a sort of healthy relationship with the local priest. And then uh, when he thinks that the priest is rejecting him for his ideas, he stabs him in the back. Um, it doesn't kill him, but, you know, it's a really horrible thing to do to somebody who's trying to help you. Um and when you think that both of those two men would have met the criteria for being a psychopath, and I, there's lots of argument about where the threshold is uh, using the psychopathy checklist, which we can maybe go into later. But these guys were both way up there, like way over the, the American threshold of 30, which is higher than the British one. And, and to say that those guys are both defined by being psychopaths is, I think, totally unhelpful on a number of levels. And this this debate actually goes back a long way to the 1940s and 50s when Herb Cleckley first published his book on the mask of sanity, how to identify a psychopath. And he uh, quickly there was a debate in American psychiatry about the fact that actually there were two kinds of psychopaths. There were people that we would, would call a psychopath or understand a psychopath to be who always have this sort of, um, it feels like a characterological element. And when I say that, I mean that they were sort of born that way. And when you read books like We Need to Talk About Kevin uh, by Lionel Shriver, or you see people who are just bad to the bone on TV, like um, uh, Patrick Bateman or uh, Hannibal Lecter, those are what was traditionally thought of as being a psychopath. And there was another term, sociopath, which referred to people who presented in much the same way as a psychopath. So they had that same lack of empathy. They tended to lie, uh, but they were a bit more violent. They were a bit more sort of uncontrolled. They were a bit more sort of impulsive. And they were 
termed sociopath. Now, we don't really use those words anymore, but the idea of a sort of primary psychopath uh, and a secondary psychopath, the primary psychopath being much more narcissistic and much more sort of uh, outward directed and the second secondary psychopath being a little bit more inward directed. And maybe being a psychopath simply for them is a way of defending against horrible emotions and feelings and guilt and shame for the things they may or may not have done as kids. So that, that distinction's always been there. And I think if you get really into it, you can see how some narcissistic psychopaths and primary psychopaths might be um, more or less charming. They might be people who are simply, you know, very, very good to talk to and, and great con men, whereas others, and I think this is especially true of robbers, just tend to have this really macho image where they think they're on top of the world and they don't need to be charming because if people don't like them, they'll just bully them into, into, into being friends, you know. So there are many more gradations we can start to make. Is the psychopath-sociopath distinction, is that even a thing? Is that, is that just bro science or is, is that used as, a, as terminology? It's sociopath was used, um, but then when the Americans published their DSM-4, the way that they diagnosed mental disorder, they included, in 1983, they included something called antisocial personality disorder. And this is pretty much... Um, uh, it's it's just a term for the sort of the behavioral aspects of psychopathy. So none of the sort of conning, manipulative, charming stuff, but more the sort of uh, antisocial lifestyle, parasitism, telling lies, lacking remorse, breaking the law, things like that. And that came to be known as sociopathy over time. But and I think because of that confusion between, you know, a, a, a proper psychopath who's probably made more by the environment than by their genes, being a sociopath, to somebody simply with antisocial personality disorder. And to get antisocial personality disorder is, is a much more inclusive term. I think something like 80% of people in prison in the UK and something like 70% of those in the USA will have this diagnosis because one of the traits is breaking the law. So you break the law a lot. Check. But, but then you get round to this, well, why do they break the law? Because they've got antisocial personality disorder. Why have they got antisocial personality disorder? Because they broke the law. It doesn't really go anywhere. So it's not a terribly helpful diagnosis. But if you think of it as a sort of a Venn diagram, the vast majority of psychopaths will also have antisocial personality disorder. Um, and, and, and most people who have antisocial personality disorder won't be psychopaths. And there's only that sort of interesting distinction of pe people with a diagnosis of psychopathy who won't have ASPD. And they're more what we like to think of as successful psychopaths, people who haven't been caught or people who just don't break the law, but they're still psychopaths, right? How much is heritability and genetics, uh, how much does that play a role when it comes to someone becoming a psychopath and how much of it is the environment? So that's a tricky one because we have pretty good evidence that there are, I suppose, heritable characteristics in psychopaths. And in particular, those are what we call the callous unemotional traits. So the fact that psychopaths don't really seem to feel any remorse for what they do, they struggle to have empathy with other people, um, and they can be very callous. They can do things and they're not really feel sorry for them i think because you know their wiring's different they don't have the connection between uh the the forefront of the, the prefrontal cortex of the brain and the amygdala the rest of us do to identify things like you know um disgust fear anger disappointment <laughs> that we sort of live our lives by psychopaths don't really interpret those signals in the same way so they don't feel shame they don't feel guilt and, and children as young as seven or, or nine years old can 
experience or, or show those traits as well. But of course, a large proportion of them won't then go on to be psychopaths. I think only about 40% will ever progress to a point where they have something like, a, you know, enough enough traits to be diagnosable as a psychopath. So it's not the whole picture to say it's just it's just genes. And then there's, you know, these wonderful cases like James Fallon in impressive neuroscience in um, Stanford University, uh, successful career. I'm very interested in psychopathy himself. I wonder why. And he was doing a study where he exposes people to um, uh, unpleasant stimuli, like looking at a, a, an unpleasant image of maybe wound detail or maybe a pleasant image of a butterfly or something like that. And then he measures their their brain response using um I think it's contrast to tomography. So you look at which areas of the brain are being activated, like a CT scan. Um, and then you you look at particular areas of the brain corresponding to how people are, with the stimulus that people are receiving. So if you look, give a psychopath a, an image of, um, I don't know, a war zone, and you gave the same image to someone who isn't a psychopath, the psychopath will show much lower levels of neurological activity in response to that stimulus because they don't recognize that something's necessarily bad. So Jim's conducting this experiment and he has uh, a lot of uh, clinical psychopaths for his experimental arm and he's looking for some people for his control arm and he's struggling because he's used up all his grad students and he hasn't properly advertised. So he's like, well, I'll just scan myself and then, you know, that'll be fine. And then he's looking through the results of the trial and he finds in his control arm, a, a brain scan for someone who really looks very, very psychopathic. There's virtually no brain activation. He's written a book about this, uh, which is really interesting. And the, the scans in the book and it's terrifying. This person is completely psychopathic. He's like, oh my God, have I got this wrong? Is this person definitely in the control group? And he looks at the scan, goes to his master key where we see all the people who are taking part. And he realizes that this is his own brain scan. He is functionally a psychopath uh, studying psychopaths at Stanford University. He's got a wife and kids. He's got a very successful career. Um, and he thinks about it and, and he thinks, well, actually, when I really think about it, I really I struggle with a lot of the roles that I play in life because I don't see why I have to do I don't see why I have to be a good dad. When people come to stay at my house, I just think, why why am I letting you eat my food? It's my food. Get out of here. I didn't invite you. Who are you anyway? And and, and these kids are uh, there's also a little video associated to promote the book, and his kids are like, yeah, dad can be difficult. <laughs> he doesn't really do emotion things like all these little tiny clues that add up to a picture of somebody who you know, clearly has some sort of background, uh, uh, maybe, uh, you know, a relative or something that would have caused his psychopathy to come out, but doesn't have any of the behavioral features, you know, good career, good family life, bit cranky at the weekends, maybe, but that could describe me as well. And I'm far too neurotic to be a psychopath. Would he have met the criteria, whatever it is, 26 or above or 30 or above on the, the scale? Would he have met that? No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't because I think that the, the psychopath test, Bob Hare's psychopathy checklist revised, uh, has pretty much an, an e I'd like to say an equal split, but actually the behavioral stuff. So breaking the law, being impulsive, being irresponsible, taking drugs, uh, being what we call criminally versatile. So having a lot of offenses from different categories, all that's in the, the secondary psychopathy factor, factor two, as we call it. And Jim Fallon had none of that. So he'd never even got halfway up the scale, which wouldn't have had enough to diagnose him as a, a clinical psychopath, if you like. Well, that's interesting because what that shows is that you can have someone who um, has the predisposition or perhaps the ingredients uh, to become a psychopath, but for whichever reason, they haven't um, behaviorally deployed that into the world in a psychopathic way. Is that the right way to look at it? Absolutely. And, and I, I think I can, I, can, I can even support your hypothesis a bit further by saying that all of the psychopaths I've met 
in you know in clinical practice have lives that are really just messed up and I can mean a lot of different things like that like some of them are from the middle class but their relationships with their parents their mothers and fathers are messed up in, in really sort of uh, sometimes quite twisted ways and you know an example of this is something we call enmeshment where uh, somebody never quite breaks away from one of their parents so typically or, or let's talk about um Tony, who's one of the cases in my book, he had an enmeshed relationship with his mother where he was never really able to break away from her emotionally. So even though he was in his late 40s when I was working with him and his mother would come to visit, often they would part with quite a lingering kiss on the lips. And, and I used to get all of these... Um, you know, just very upset nurses who've been supervising the visit saying, oh, they did that thing again. You know, what are we going to do? We have to address this. And and sort of, you know, visits in hospitals are quite sacred. So we, we can't mess with it. But it really did freak people out. And and the way that, uh, you know, he seemed to sort of function or do the things he did just to sort of please his mother all the time was really interesting in the way that it sort of overrid his his own personality it sort of it meant that he his own personality you know who who are you tony and he would really struggle to answer that question as well he was a very good con man he was very psychopathic but none of those things really make a person who they are and i think one of the reasons that he was such a good con man is because he could play any role because he wasn't really playing a role that was him he lacked a sort of you know i'm mark i'm an academic i'm neurotic i do very strange things in my spare time like read about some read and write about psychopaths that's who i am but for tony there wasn't that sort of core he didn't have anything that wasn't the slick con man yeah there's and no, that's no really concrete strange. sense of self is there he's very very malleable if you were to if you were to design the childhood to activate the uh psychopathic genetic tendency what would you what would you have happen to a child that's an interesting way around of asking it chris but i'd say you've got you've got a lot of options unfortunately you've got um so we, we, let's start thinking about someone like tony where does enmeshment come from and i think enmeshment comes from well in tony's case there's two things first of all a father who's very um very uh, sort of very potent very present so the father was a con man as well a very successful one considerably more successful than tony because i can't find any record of who he was or him ever being caught but there we go um uh, and and then uh, the father in tony's case disappeared so once if a father leaves a kid particularly in sort of you know the pre-teen teen years uh, they can become very very um I guess, uh, in, in, embedded in the kids' memories as like a perfect dad. Yeah, they, they didn't stay around long enough to fuck it up, basically. So in that case, the relationship turns very much towards the mother because that's the only parent you've got left. And in this specific case, I think the mother also um, tended to be very, very overbearing. She didn't want to separate from her son. She wanted him to be around all the time. She wanted to have almost like an adult intimate relationship with them you know with not necessarily sexual but having that sort of you know that that same level of intimacy like we cannot part we cannot be different from each other and if you look back at some of the early psychoanalytic writing from sort of the 40s 50s and 60s this is all very much identified very strong patriarchal figure um and potentially like overbearing over enmeshed mother as well Lots of people talk about Ted Bundy as being a sort of nice. I was literally about to say the same thing because his mother was still at the trial, had this sort of angel boy, my my beautiful perfect child vision of him. 
Right. And and that and it, so there's that. And there's also the fact that, you know, I think his father was not particularly somebody of merit, but his grandfather was a hugely sort of paternalistic, overbearing, dominating figure in his life. And uh, he there were all these sort of signs that would encourage somebody to to be psychopathic. I don't know about I mean, this is the interesting thing is being a psychopath doesn't necessarily make you a criminal like Jim Fallon. Right. You, what pushed Bundy, Bundy to commit his crime specifically is a different question. But certainly being a psychopath and not having that same level of moral restraint could make it easier for you to commit crimes like that. The other, if, if we think a little bit about what we talk about, sociopathy as well and secondary psychopaths, I think they can be much more formed by an environment that's just very abusive and harsh. And I remember uh, somebody I worked with in the UK, actually, who was very much, a, you know, a sociopath, a secondary psychopath, so somebody who wasn't charming, wasn't particularly cu- cu- cunning, wasn't very glib, but was very antisocial, uh, a very remorseless um, uh, and very callous, you know, did bad things to other people, didn't feel bad about it. He, he recounted this this episode that still stays with me. He's not in the book. He's just a very interesting character. And and he was 12 years old and he was, um, uh, his dad was very, again, very dominant, but he, and, and his dad wanted him to be tough, you know. So he gets into a fight with some older boys and this guy was, you know, even in his 40s, very cheeky and sort of, like to push boundaries so he probably said something a little bit out of his station so much group much older boys chase him alone down the street and he knows he's going to get everything beaten out of him if he stays around so he runs home bangs on the door his dad opens the door and says what is it uh jim and jim says oh these these guys are chasing me they're going to beat me up dad you've got to help me and he says no sort it out yourself it'll make you strong and closes the door in his face other guys arrive beat him up right side right outside his family's front door and he never forgets that but he doesn't remember it as i would which is my god wasn't your dad an awful bastard but rather as his dad making him tough and this being a good thing that you know his dad made him realize that at the end nobody's got your back i was just like that's an awful lesson to learn from that story but nevertheless if you are brought up like that, then you're going to develop something like a psychopathic defense because feeling emotion and trying to think about events like that in terms of what they mean for you as a person, it's going to be really hard. So better just not to think about them emotionally at all. Better to distance yourself and act like a psychopath. Have you got any idea why psychopathy is adaptive? Why it would have evolved at all? So uh, the, the, <laughs> we, we often think about this about personality disorders of all kinds because they, they're chronic, they don't go away. Um, I think the way that we think about personalities or in terms of antisocial, narcissistic, borderline, histrionic isn't terribly helpful because it suggests that there's sort of a, a typical psychopath or a typical narcissist or a typical um, schizoid person. And that is very rarely the case. These people are often very, very different, but they do have these sort of core features. And I think the thinking is if, if, if particularly you uh, were, if we think back to, um, uh, let's say, Vikings, yeah, a society with very, very limited resources, it has to sort of parasitize from other societies in order to gain the resources it needs to proliferate, right? To, to start new colonies, to expand. So, uh, you know, we both lived in uh, Newcastle for a while. And Lindisfarne, the monastery there, was very rich and very prone to they raiding by up. Viking invaders. Absolutely, up. and they they were sacked and they were murdered, and all that stuff was taken. They kept coming back, bless them. And I think you know, there's some sort of period in the the 16th century where the Vikings came four or five times a year. And in order to do that, to be able to, I mean, you know, anybody can do something terrible. 
But to be able to do something terrible and then do it again. And I think this is where we start to think about post-traumatic stress disorder. It's literally the case that some offenders in prison have done such terrible things that they've traumatized themselves. So when they sort of say, I don't really remember the offense, in some cases, they might be telling the truth because they, they may not be actually able to access those memories. But that isn't how a psychopath works, because a psychopath won't experience that shame and trauma in response to doing bad things because they, they don't see these as bad things. They see, I'm going to go and protect my family in order to protect my family. I have to provide them with food and I have to provide them with clothes. I have to provide them with wealth so that we can have more kids. If I have to kill some people to do that, it's not a problem because that's what I want to do. And this is what we call instrumental reasoning. So all that the focus is, is on the end. Yeah, the means are totally irrelevant. Yeah, I need to get there. If people die or get messed up on the way, oh, well, that's unfortunate because you say it's unfortunate, but I don't really buy into that. So having a group of people in your society, not all of them, I should stress, but a group of people in your society who can repeatedly go out and do violent, stressful, traumatic things in service of the wider family is extremely adaptive. And you can actually think of how there are certain models like this for things like borderline personality disorder, people who lack a fixed identity, who require a level of support and steer that just isn't available in our societies anymore today. You can see how genetically that would actually be quite adaptive. But in modern societies where you can't be a violent asshole and you can't be entirely dependent on other people for everything that you want because it's an individualistic society, they're no longer adaptive and they cause problems for people and they also cause problems for people around them as well. Dude, you blow my mind. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. So if you were to think of a, a typical tribe, your Dunbar 100-person tribe or whatever, as like a football team, you need a goalkeeper. And your goalkeeper has a very specific role to play. Now, it wouldn't, the team wouldn't work if everybody tried to be a goalkeeper. Now, the same thing is happening here. So I had, um, had a really good discussion about narcissists a couple of years ago. And in that, it was basically suggested that the um, social ecology constrains narcissism, that if you have too many narcissists, it becomes so chaotic within your tribe that it, it can't continue to, to work. So not only do you have social norms which restrict sort of narcissistic tendencies, but narcissists are probably killed at a higher rate than non-narcissist people and i'm going to guess that psychopaths it's like a high risk high reward strategy of, of existing so you're more likely to die but you're also more likely to become the billionaire or, or the, the chieftain of the tribe or something like that which is a lot of the time why people point the finger at presidents and say that they're, they're a psychopath so but that's so interesting to think that individually as a person psychopathy whether it's adaptive or not is kind of up for debate but for the tribe overall having a few psychopaths or maybe one or two psychopaths per group is actually like having a very specialized weapon or a tool that you can deploy into certain certain circumstances and then if you scale up to the size of you know the vikings i don't know how big that was but i'm going to guess perhaps in the thousands you may be able to condense down a, a boat a long boat of 30 psychopaths with a couple of non-psychopaths and you can send them over to lindisfarne to sack them and and, and come back that's so good yeah, I, and I, I think just to, to add to that, it's a, the other thing about psychopaths is they have terrible risk-reward reasoning, particularly socially. So if you, you know, if you play a, a game of poker with a psychopath, they'll continue to to bet outrageously um, based on very very bad cards. And I think that that's really interesting that psychopaths are such good con men in some cases. You know, they can actually carry that off. They can play brag very effectively. Um, but 
if you have somebody who can't make those risk reward calculations, I think if I go off to Lindisfarne, they may have got wise and stationed you know celtic soldiers all the way around the edges and we're going to go there and we're going to get fucked up they won't think of it in that kind of way all they'll be focused on is the potential reward the risk is irrelevant to cyclists and we've shown this again and again in research literature that they just don't you know they don't factor that in and also if you you know again i was talking about trauma if psychopaths come back from these raids and they're not traumatized they can just go out and do it again and again until they're all killed off and i think with the, the example you were using of, of narcissists again it, it, there is sort of like you know, a sense of maybe a critical mass or maybe a point to which um, those kind of traits are valued by a society, but only up to a point. You you know, you, you can only be an, as much, so much of a narcissist before it becomes intolerable for society. And I think that changes over time. I think the amount of, of narcissism that will accept shifts quite a lot. Um, I'm not necessarily in the so I think about narcissism as a clinical condition. And when I read stuff from the United States about there being an epidemic of narcissism, I've recently written an article that got quite a lot of attention that says that's not how it's not helpful. I think you've someone got that to likes really to take be... selfies and post them on Instagram. We're not we're not talking yeah. about that. No, because we, we, we need to draw a line between. I think we all have we all need a bit of what's called narcissistic supply. We all need a little bit of uh, telling that we're good people, that we've done right things. Yeah, that we're important, right? And if we don't have that, then our self esteem drops and we feel terrible. Um, and and narcissists, are particularly grandiose narcissists, don't have that need at all because they're so absolutely convinced that they're they're right that it's uh, <laughs> you know it's that sort of a non issue. So like with psychopathy and, and narcissism together, and there's a lot of correlation between the two. I should say so a lot of the sort of more grandiose narcissists can also have psychopathy and, and vice versa um i think there is a, a limit and i think that if we think about stephen pinker's work on the reduction of violence in societies over time these aren't societies that value the, the traits and the qualities that psychopaths have but i'm sure that there were such societies at many stages in our past who was that guy that tried to get someone to buy the eiffel tower <laughs> i do know who you were french comment some time ago i do know who you mean but but that that so someone like tony um that that's, that's an old con uh, you know selling off uh, old um uh, wonders of the world or, or, or structures that have you know quite, had quite a few years on them and plausibly could be ready to be decommissioned and replaced with something better that's one of the oldest cons in the book is you try and attract investors into this great opportunity and you're basically selling you know selling the Eiffel Tower to someone who's gullible enough to believe that it could be up for sale. And that's all about that's all about the graft, right? That's all about how you present yourself as a plausible salesman. So someone like Tony in the book, you know, he's he's got the best suits. He's got his own bank. He's got a chauffeur. He's got a Mercedes stretch Mercedes Benz. All things that he's obtained through very dodgy means. But nevertheless, you know, you, <laughs> when you start signing checks from your own bank, people start to pay attention. And if you've seen enough, and I think with Tony's case, he'd seen enough from his dad about how you get people to buy a con. It's very difficult it, 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 because this is what um, I don't want to get too technical. We call this malignant pseudo identification. So you see what somebody wants in a situation. You learn from watching other people in the same situation fall for the con. And you think, why do they fall for the con? And you're not thinking emotionally. You're thinking they fall for the con because they want this. So if I can promise that plausibly, then I can pretty much take them for everything they've got. Because once I have them believing they're going to get, you know, a 10,000% return on their scrap of the Eiffel Tower... <laughs> <laughs> that you know they're, they're finished because the psychopath will keep doing that that scam over and over again i, I work with a a guy who posed as a police officer 
and he would go into people's uh, flats and, and offer to move their jewelry and money to a safe place in the flat. Um, I'd say it was, you know, obviously a secret police procedure and he'd tell them where he was going to leave it. He'd take it, put it all in a, a police marked bag and then walk out of the house and then tell them to check after he's gone. It was all there. But of course, when they checked, it wasn't there and he wasn't a police officer. So there was no way they'd track it down. And that, you know, isn't a particularly complex scam. But what is amazing is the fact that he had something like 600 instances of the same scam on his rap sheet, like 600. It's just unbelievable numbers of, of, of sort of cons that have gone down in this guy and how good he must have been to be able to identify people who would fall for this and carry it out again and again and again. So it really is quite a sort of remorseless um, rate of success once they get the graft right, you know. What's interesting to me is that psychopathy, perhaps for a long time throughout human history, let's say maybe the last 10,000, 20,000 years has been pretty useful. And then for the last 100, 200, 300 years, it's now no longer adaptive. It's now a big problem. And um, it's kind of strange that we may have like culturally competed psychopaths out of their place in society. I wouldn't go too too far with that. I mean, I think there's still a lot of places where psychopaths can flourish to a degree. I think the difficulty is that we have to think a little bit more carefully in the way we define psychopathy, particularly about whether things like aggression, violence and antisocial behavior are necessarily part of that. And if you think about, I don't know, I'm sure we can all imagine some recent political figures who've been diagnosed as psychopaths. Are they aggressive? Are they antisocial? I mean, they're very self-serving, I'm sure, but those those descriptors don't really define them. So we need to think more crisply, I think, about what it is that makes a psychopath. And we need to do that without thinking about behavior, because the factors that drive behavior are very, very complicated. I was a uh, colleague of mine, Kerry Danes, forensic psychologist, has also written books about her work. And she says, I know a guy who is a murderer. They've killed I think about 15 people in their life, life, uh, lifetime, they've uh, uh, killed women and children, including in that total, but they've never been to prison and they're not a psychopath. And this person is, of course, a, uh, an SAS commando, special forces commander who does this as part of their job. Now, that behavior, it's possible this person is a psychopath. Sure. But, you know, my colleague didn't think so. And she's quite experienced. So it's possible this person is a, a psychopath. But that, that's sort of irrelevant here because the reason that they're doing these things is not because they are instrumentally driven, it's because that's their job and it's their function in life to do that. So we can't really infer psychopathy from behavior and we need to start moving away from that way of defining psychopathy and think much more in terms of the sort of psychological and emotional traits that people have. And if we were able to do that, well, I guess the corollary is that we have a lot more, identify a lot more psychopaths in probably politics, used car sales, possibly chief executives, is it true? stock does, traders. But does, does that... Um that sort of folklore thing about one percent of the the population are psychopaths is that is there any legs to that yeah it's less than that but um we did uh in the 2000 adult psychiatric mobility survey which is a representative survey of um people in the uk uh which there isn't currently an equivalent of in the usa but there are some other 
servers you can use to, to estimate it. Um, we actually included the, the PTLSV, the screening version of the psychopathy checklist, which you don't need to do a long interview for. Uh, and we looked at the proportion of people who were diagnosable psychopaths in the UK household population is about one or 0.4 to 0.6%. So about one in 170, 200 people would have been diagnosable as a psychopath. Um, which is still actually quite higher a lot. than I would have thought. Yeah, a yeah. Lot. and if you think, you know, they tend to get banged up with quite a high propensity. And that we did also find that group, the group of successful psychopaths who didn't have long criminal careers. But um, what was interesting about it was that they did use a lot of designer drugs. They tended to have quite high risk, high reward jobs. They also had declared bankruptcy a lot more often. Um, and very interestingly, their annual average household income was significantly higher than people in. Uh, uh, the general population so they were successful like more successful than not just getting by but actually flourishing give or take the odd bankruptcy high risk there, high reward man high risk high exactly. reward uh, why exactly. is it why is it that there's so few female psychopaths well i think that that that's sort of that part of this is recursive like if we are judging psychopathy on the basis of behavior um, male men are more anti-social. They have more. There are more anti-social men. There are more men who go to prison. There are more men who meet the criteria for juvenile delinquency, for criminal versatility, for poor behavioural controls. And therefore, there's sort of a bias factor in using something like the psychopathy checklist because we use a lot of behaviour that's just more typically associated with men. Um, there are female psychopaths. In in my book, I talk about um, Angela Simpson, who presents. You know very much as a really seriously high scoring male psychopath very what, what, what does that mean so that means that on the psychopathy checklist she would score in the mid to high 30s you know there's very few of the items that she doesn't 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 hit uh, very glib very superficially charming very manipulative because she manipulates a, a disabled man into her apartment on the premise of sex and then tortures and brutally murders him over a long long period of time so it's a really gratuitous unpleasant offense um and I think actually when uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge was starting to think about killing Eve, she wanted to start thinking about a psychopath. She saw these interviews on TV and she was like, that's amazing. And they are really, that's really, really masculine presenting psychopath traits. And there's a sort of, it's a literature that sort of how people think about female psychopaths that there isn't really, there isn't really a sort of clinical basis for it. Like we don't have a lot of female psychopaths. So we're kind of guessing here, but people think of female psychopaths as more emotionally aggressive using people as cat's paws something of something like um dangerous liaisons uh where you know the marquess uses people around her to do the dirty work so she can manipulate people but can do it behind the scenes um that's sort of the archetype but again if, if you were doing that successfully you wouldn't necessarily get caught for it and and secondly of the the 2000 we commissioned like 2000 beds for male, male psychopaths in the uk dangerous and severe personality disorder and then 40, 40 beds four zero beds for women of which 15 were only ever filled and a lot of the rest were just decommissioned so the profile of women who we would be able to use as say a, a research population as female psychopaths is very very small and we don't know enough to sort of say, well, the archetypal female psychopath is like this. The evidence that we do have is that psychopathy tends to be invariant, but then you can't have behavioral invariance when one of the behavioral factors is aggression or antisociality, for example, because we yeah. know those are biased towards men. I suppose as well that if you have uh, aggression and beating someone up or killing somebody is such a obvious red flag for you to identify a psychopath, whereas 
I it must be easier to get away with manipulating people, doing the cat's paw type thing, you know, the femme fatale type, but without perhaps the physical aggression, because fewer people are going to report the fact that they were conned by a woman and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, that's, I mean, what you're saying is if you are going to be a psychopath, make sure that you're a woman first, because it's going to be easier on average to get away with it. Uh, but what, what, explain the story of that lady, because that, really, that was really surprising what she did to that man. Well, this is a this is a again a, a very psychopathic trait of um, a sort of grandiosity. So believing that you are the, the the you know the center of the world, and your decisions are the right ones to always make. And she uh, she worked as a sex worker and a waitress, and she had um, she knew a guy in the community around her who'd been to prison for a while, and um, they they had a sort of on off relationship thing and he was you know he probably destroyed his body with drugs and alcohol and other things and he was sometimes used a wheelchair to get around um and then one day it turned out she heard i think from a third party that this guy had said um that he'd informed on one of his uh colleagues uh for criminal behavior to the police and she sort of from this you know idle conversation forms an idea that she's going to kill him so she persuades him to come and meet her and then she's sort of you know quite tantalizing and and, and sort of sexually provocative uh, and gets him to come back to her flat and leaves his wheelchair at quite some distance in the stairway so it doesn't look like away from the stairway so it doesn't look like he's come in there and then you know brings him into the the living room sits him down in front of the tv then ties him up while he's not got his wheelchair can't really get away um starts torturing him driving nails into his skull and he, he lives for about sort of seven or eight hours through this and, and only dies in the early morning after really end of the ordeal and then she gets her current partner to help her take the body downstairs dismember it burn it and get rid of the evidence um all because she doesn't like she says she doesn't like snitches and, and if you there's a lot of youtube videos available of her being interviewed by some of the american tv channels and it's quite chilling the way that she presents this, you know, somebody says, would you do it again? Hell yeah. Without a second's hesitation, you know, really actually just aggressive. It's just aggressive. The way that she presents and very, very remorseless, callous, um, uh, uh, just, just, you know, pretty typical male psychopathy. Um, and that's quite rare in a, a female presenting or sorry, a fem female presenting with psychopathy, but there are elements to it that fit with the stereotypes. Like she, you know, she doesn't just dispose the body on her own. She gets her boyfriend to do it and then gets him to keep stum with some sort of promise. You know, there's the sort of sense of, you know, she's using sexuality to bring somebody up to be, uh, to be murdered. Maybe, uh, some, I, well, I can't think of any of the, uh, the, the male psychopaths I've worked with is doing that. Although some of them would, um, attack sex workers, so it's not uh, who was that one in america was it the night stalker was he the one that was going around killing the endless numbers of oh no there was the the yorkshire ripper in the uk was someone that was almost exclusively working on uh, sex workers right yes 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 that that's right and there was a um uh i worked with a uh a, a, i think he, he would qualify as a serial killer i think he had two three offenses so would target men in toilets costing locations in london and you know bring them back uh, get put them in a cubicle with the premise of, of sexual contact and then strangle them from behind um and again very 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 psychopathic because you've got to have that charm to get people to do what you want to do and some of the other 
you know, some of the robbers I work with, like I said, they just they don't have the graph that you couldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't trust this man as far as you could throw them, right? So you'd never be able to to sort of trust them in a situation where you were vulnerable. There has to be a sort of something disarming or uh, seductive about yeah, them. So you need that they need the charm to offset the ick factor that people feel when they're around them. How often is it? How often does sex come into this? I, I was watching. Um, who was the dude that dressed up as the clown in America? That clown killer. You you know the one I mean. Come on, people are screaming it into their. Sorry, I'm, te- I'm terrible. I'm, te- I'm people terrible. People screaming on it into their airport. I'm gonna I'm gonna Google it. Um, there was this guy who was regularly killing people. He's one of the most famous serial killers. Clown, clown, serial. Killer. John Wayne Gacy. John oh, Wayne Gacy. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah. right. Like I said, I'm terrible with serial killers. So. Um, one of the things that he, it, it seemed like he did was he seemed to be sexually attracted to uh, some or many or all of the boys that he killed. It was mostly guys that he killed, might have been exclusively guys that he killed. But it seemed like he had a, a, a self-hatred of his own sexuality. It seemed like his shame was one of the uh, compulsions that caused him to do that. I'm just interested by how much, you know, we've talked about some of these killers going after sex workers, John Wayne Gacy here, almost killing in response perhaps to his own uh, sense of guilt or shame around his sexuality. How often does sex seem to come into it? So, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, I guess I'm just hesitant to to say that psychopaths have a particular pattern of offending behaviour because they, you know, it really... The, the the range of offences we had in somewhere like Rampton was very very broad, and it included child sex offences. But um, one of the interesting things about Rampton was that uh, nobody in a hospital you don't disclose people's offences, so nobody knew what anyone else had done. So we had this really interesting dynamic between two old friends who were guys who were in their fifties when I was there. So you know, twenty years ago, this they'd be quite old now, um, and one of them was a child sex offender and you know very sort of overweight not not particularly appealing person but his best mate was someone called tony or something and tony was in the hospital because he killed and dismembered a child sex offender and it was really interesting that these two had such a sort of positive dynamic um that they uh, uh you know didn't know simply because they didn't know each other's offenses um so it, a real range of men in this same ward with very, very different offences. And I I think the thing about where there was, it seemed to be that where there was a sexual element, uh, psychopaths are quite sexually promiscuous. They don't kind of have maybe the same scruples or strong feelings about their what their partner should be or look like that the rest of us do. So they tend to be very promiscuous, but they also tend to target partners in a way that would suggest like a sort of marital type relationship. So they don't just sort of randomly go off and pull people and, you know, have sex with them and then leave them. They tend to try and pull people into a more intimate relationship, but only with the goal of satisfying their needs for comfort, intimacy, and perhaps also, you know, things like money and, um, 
safety. So you you know you live with someone because they're your partner, but not because you're really interested in ever having a long term relationship, simply because they are meeting your instrumental goals, immediate instrumental goals. So this means that sex becomes quite a sort of currency for psychopaths, which is something I would say. But the thing is, then the criminal justice system gets very very black and white about what exactly takes place in the index offence. You know, and if you rape someone and kill them. It's likely that the Crown Prosecution Service would go for just the murder as the crime rather than murder and rape, because then you've got two cases to build, two charges to consider, two lots of evidence. You just go with the murder. So some of the crimes that people or that I would have understood and as being murder might well have had sexual elements that were not necessarily present in maybe the description of the offence. And it could be kept secret because they were never charged and convicted of, you know, a sexually intended murder. An example was um, when I worked within special hospitals who murder, murdered a woman by inserting a, uh, a sharpened um, a broom into her, uh, into her vagina. And it's just, you know, a horrible way to go. And, and he was uh, uh, convicted of murder, which meant that he had protection from, all of being perceived as a, I'm so sorry, being perceived as a, a sex offender or a nonce or anything like that. And he, he he was also quite grandiose and quite manipulative. And he, he used his status as a, a violent criminal, a murderer, to avoid being targeted as a sex offender. And this is all about, I guess, sort of the hierarchy of offences in prisons and why people present themselves in the way that they do. Um, but it was a little bit chilling that, you know, this was clearly a sexual offence, but he got away with out being judged in that way because it's been classified as a violent one by a sort of slightly arbitrary system. That's so interesting, the fact that because what the criminal justice system is actually looking for is is a conviction. And if you've got a conviction of murder, presumably that you're, you're going to be in there for so long that adding rape on top of that is is kind of, kind of pointless, kind of doesn't really make any sense. So, yeah, uh, it's also I, every time that I speak to somebody that works in prisons or with criminals and stuff like that, this hierarchy of offense um, always seems to come up. And I suppose that beyond, like your net worth in the, the prison has a little bit of a bearing on you, but not tons because you don't have your money with you. You know, your possessions or your house or the clothes that you wear or the watch that you have, all of that stuff's been stripped away from you. Your job title, your qualifications, your education, your family, you know, all of this stuff really doesn't really matter. So one of the few things you have that can quickly identify where you sit in there is what's on the rap sheet. Absolutely. And and this leads to, you know, these very bizarre hierarchies where often, as I said, sex offenders are at the bottom. Yeah, they are vulnerable prisoners. Often we spend a lot of time and, and sort of thought in the prison service protecting them. And at the top is, you know, the the, the, the violent criminals, um, say murderers or people who've committed attempted murder, which can be very misleading. And at the very top of that are the robbers, because the thing about robbing someone is this pretty definitely, you know, indisputably a violent offence. And maybe you did, you know, maybe you did or didn't um, kill someone. I love that uh, in uh, Prison Break, the the guy gets himself into the prison by being a robber because you just all you have to do to rob someone is threaten them with a weapon right plausibly so you walk into a bank with a gun make some sort of unspecified threat you're a robber um and that you know, that goes a long way from sort of somebody who is maybe a serial robber who targets people very aggressively and lo- looking for an excuse to harm them to someone who makes a sort of botched attempt because they're a drug addict to hold up a, um, a, a convenience store or something and is busted in charge for a very serious violent offence. Very, very different. But but robbers, the group of robbers contains, for example, a lot of psychopaths, a lot of psychopaths. 
Has anyone tried to cure psychopathy? Yeah, a lot of things have been tried, Chris, but um, it's a pretty sad, sad tale. There's, uh, in the 60s and 70s, they got quite experimental. They tried things like naked encounter therapy. They tried LSD. What's, what's naked tried... encounter therapy? <laughs> so you take basically you take off all your clothes, and this was specifically targeted for psychopaths. You take off all your clothes, sit around in a room together, talk about you know, your <laughs> life, your offending. And, and it, there's sort of the, the, the idea, I think, behind it was that if you strip off all the sort of social expectations, you find that at heart it was social society that made psych- psychopaths bad. And then, the, you know, you put them in a sort of primal situation, they'd be much better to each other. But it, 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 they weren't, and curiously enough, it actually made them worse or more likely to be convicted of a violent offence after that. So totally total failure on every point isolation tank therapy um and there were a few there have been a few like you know well-meaning but misguided attempts to use like less uh, less directive form so ashworth hospital had a uh, personality disorder ward which had quite a few psychopaths on it and the staff tried to be given a little bit more freedom and i think the staff somehow got the wrong end of the stick about what freedom appropriate freedom was for a psychopath and there was a one of the patients who was there on a transfer um said that there was or accused the or told the hospital authorities that there was a a girl being groomed by the the ward um patients to come onto the ward and be used for um uh, you know sex and, and other terrible things and they alerted the hospital authorities and uh there was an inquiry which found that basically the staff had allowed themselves to be completely manipulated out of the ward altogether so there's also an, an interesting lesson there about putting a lot of psychopaths together in one pa- place um which maybe we hadn't learned by the time of dspd who is one of the scariest psychopaths that you've worked with so we i think thinking about um uh Think about Paul. I mean, he was sort of scary in the sense of interpersonally, you know, you wouldn't want to to be with him for any length of time because, you you know, he might try and manipulate you and he just might try and bully you. And and that, that sort of constant sense of threat, uh, the idea that there might be other people on the ward, everyone from patients to prisoners to prison officers might be working for him on some capacity. That's a very scary thought as well. You're never quite knowing who's on your side. But I think that there are other characters who are slightly more sinister than that characters that you really don't get to the bottom and there was a patient i worked with in lower conditions of security but who'd been up in uh, high security for a long time and he was someone who just seemed to be wired very very differently and, and the way that his wiring worked was that he was deeply unpredictable so you could talk to him one day and you'd have somebody who was quite pleasant and engaged and interesting and then it wasn't necessarily like hour to hour, but certainly day to day, he could switch into a very, very aggressive mode where any questions meant, why the fuck are you asking me that? And and you, you're still thinking of the guy from yesterday. So you didn't know where this new guy came from and his offending history was very complex. And there was a, um, there was a murder in his history and several other attacks on people. And some of it, uh, may have had a sexual element but it was again very difficult to tease out and if somebody's not willing to work with you to think about sort of the psychosexual aspects of their offending you're never going to get to the bottom of those things and i think let's uh, let's call him trevor so trevor a the pleasant one 
often dropped hints that he was ready to talk about this stuff. And then, curiously enough, Trevor B would show up the next day and tell you to fuck off. And that would sort of be the end of the discussion, <laughs> at least for the next year until Trevor A reappeared again. But I think th- 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 this was a case that really affected me. Maybe I'm not describing it enough, but it, that that inconsistency it used to give me nightmares. Like I used to have nightmares where either he was killing me or I was killing him. Because working as a clinician with someone like that, you get very, very frustrated and confused and difficult to organize your thoughts because you don't know who's going to be presenting your opposite. So I think that's sort of when somebody's deeply unpredictable if someone is predictably nasty that's actually okay but it's like you know that's sort of how trauma works if if, if the, the goalposts change every time you come into work it can really mess you up quite quickly and i think that i would have said was the the case that thinking of sort of generating a sense of fear and anxiety in me that certainly did it the most yeah all right mark let's bring this one home if people want to check out the work that you do where should they go um, I, I would say, you know, Google me. I've got a university web page. You, you can also find my book, uh, Making a Psychopath, published by Penguin in the UK and uh, Macmillan in the USA. It's a short read. It's it's not intended to be very heavily academic or anything like that. And some of the characters I've talked about today are in it as well. So I, I hope you enjoy it if you do happen to find it. All right, Mark. I appreciate you. Lovely to be here, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed learning about psychopaths as much as I did. It is a strange fascination. I really do want to work out what it is about them that compels us to be so obsessed and so interested in the way that they act. Maybe it's like a warning thing. Maybe it's the fact that the more that we learn about it, the safer we feel we're going to be because we're not by understanding maybe we think that we're going to be less susceptible i'm unsure anyway very interesting thank you to mark for coming on don't forget that you can receive a 60-day money-back guarantee five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin d from athletic greens by going to athleticgreens.com slash modern wisdom you can get a 30 percent discount on your at-home testosterone test at try lgc dot com slash modern wisdom and the code modern 30 at checkout and you can get a 20 percent discount on all full priced items with the highest quality cbd in the world by going to bit.ly slash cbd wisdom and the code mw20 at checkout i'll see you next time <laughs>